You are listening to Reach MD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Acute decompensated heart failure, the scope of the problem. Welcome to the Clinician Roundtable. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, your host, and with me today is Dr. William T. Abraham. Dr. Abraham is the professor of internal medicine and the director of the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at the Ohio State University Medical Center. Today we will speak to Dr. Abraham about acute decompensated heart failure, the scope of the problem, and how to approach evaluating and treating these patients. Welcome to the program, Dr. Abraham. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to join you. What I thought we would start with is the typical patient. What is the typical presentation of acute decompensated heart failure patient into the hospital? Most patients who are admitted to the hospital with decompensation are admitted because they're wet. And what I mean by that is that they present with one or more signs or symptoms of clinical congestion, such as jugular venous distension, pulmonary or peripheral edema, liver congestion, or ascites. And the presenting symptom is generally an increase in shortness of breath. Now, why do these patients come back into the hospital? What is the most common reason that somebody with a diagnosis of heart failure happens to get readmitted with congestion? Typically, these patients return with fluid retention. The reason for that is complex. In some instances, it simply relates to dietary or pharmacological noncompliance. But in many instances, it simply relates to disease progression and to the onset and progression of the cardiorenal syndrome, so that despite treatment with diuretics and other evidence-based and guidelines-recommended therapies, these patients slowly retain fluid over a period of days to weeks, and eventually they become symptomatic, requiring their presentation to the emergency department or direct admission to the hospital. Now, I know that some patients, instead of having a gradual decompensation, have a fairly acute change, the so-called flash pulmonary edema. Is there a different mechanism that causes these patients to come back to the ED? Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because we have learned over the past few years during our studies of implantable hemodynamic monitoring systems that flash pulmonary edema is actually an uncommon event. It does exist. It is almost always associated with another acute cardiovascular event, a myocardial infarction, an arrhythmia, acute rupture of a, of a papillary muscle resulting in severe mitral regurgitation, and so on and so forth. But the typical decompensation in the chronic heart failure patient usually occurs over days to weeks. Now, you mentioned compliance with medicines and dietary recommendations. How often does a new ischemic episode occur that can put a patient into heart failure? turns out to be uh, relatively uncommon, but certainly it's something that we need to think about each time the patient with an ischemic etiology of heart failure is admitted to the hospital with decompensation. But again, in most patients with chronic heart failure, the ischemia is not playing the predominant role, and really the natural history of the heart failure per se is what leads to the decompensation. So since ischemia can be a part of it, I suspect part of the management is ruling out ischemia or ruling out a myocardial infarction in every admission? It is. And then the question is, how hard does one work to do that? And I think it really depends on the clinical presentation. So I don't believe that every patient has to have uh, serial enzymes and electrocardiograms with each hospitalization for worsening heart failure. But of course, if the patient has known coronary disease, if they present with chest pain or other ischemic symptoms or uh, with initial electrocardiographic changes, 
and so on and so forth. That is, if the clinical index of suspicion for a new ischemic event is relatively high, that diagnosis should certainly be pursued with vigor. Now, can you give us some guidelines on when you would put a patient like this into the ICU versus treatment on a telemetry ward? Yeah, I think it really depends on what the patient's presenting risk factors look like. In this regard, perhaps the best guide for risk stratification in patients presenting with decompensated heart failure comes from the ADHERE registry. The ADHERE registry is the Acute Decompensated National Heart Failure Registry and has enrolled more than 200,000 cases of decompensated heart failure. A study which involved both a retrospective cohort of patients to develop the predictors and then a prospective group for validation purposes was published in JAMA, suggested that three simple measures can help us stratify these patients. BUN, systolic blood pressure, and creatinine at the time of admission. And based on various cut points, one can determine which patients are at high risk and which are at lower risk. Essentially, patients who present with worsening renal dysfunction and with low blood pressures should be in the, in the most intense setting for care. Patients who have normal or even elevated blood pressures who have preserved renal function may often be treated safely on a step-down or a telemetry ward. Dr. Abraham, you mentioned different criteria for severity of presentation, including patients who have some renal insufficiency and low blood pressure. Are these the type of patients that we think about using inotropic agents? Absolutely. These patients have in-hospital mortality rates that range from 15 to 20 percent in contrast to the lower risk patient who may have an in-hospital mortality risk as low as 2 to 4 percent. These patients generally present not only with fluid volume overload, but also with a low output syndrome. It's often due to increases in both preload and afterload, and so vasodilators may be effective if the patient is not particularly hypotensive, or if marked hypotension exists, perhaps we might consider a positive inotropic agent. Now, some of the agents that are frequently used are agents such as dibutamine, milrinone, and niseratide. Do you have any guidelines on how we should consider using these three agents? In other words, what are the appropriate patient types for these agents? Yeah, I think we can describe patient subtypes, although uh, appreciate that this is a spectrum of illness, so the cut points can be a little bit fuzzy around the edges. But in general, patients who present to the hospital who are wet and warm, very well perfused with a normal blood pressure may be treated adequately with an intravenous diuretic alone. On the other end of the spectrum, the patient that presents wet and with cardiogenic shock or perhaps with impending cardiogenic shock, the patient that's cold, clammy, uh, clamped down, has white nail beds, poor capillary refill, a narrow pulse pressure, and a low blood pressure, those patients often have very low cardiac outputs and may require treatment with a positive inotropic agent. And then the in-between group, the group that I like to call wet and lukewarm, those patients are often ideal candidates for treatment with an IV diuretic and an IV vasodilator. Now, you mentioned specifically two inotropes, and those are the two that are used most predominantly, dobutamine and milrinone, and we can differentiate them in that dobutamine is really a pure inotrope. Milrinone is more of an inodilator and also has an effect to dilate pulmonary vessels. So if the patient's hypotensive, dobutamine may be a better choice. 
if they have a better blood pressure but pulmonary hypertension or severe vasoconstriction, perhaps milrinone would be a better choice in that setting. There has been some controversy I know about nasiratide, especially in relation to renal function. Do you have any guidelines on how this agent should be used in this class of patients? I do. I think the uh, indication for which nasiratide has been most well studied and is FDA approved that is the short-term treatment of hospitalized patients with acutely decompensated heart failure, you know, really is the right group of patients to consider at this point in time. It is a vasodilator, and like any vasodilator, one can overdo it. So if you lower the blood pressure too much with this agent, there is a risk of worsening renal function, but that risk is relatively low. So in most patients who present with systolic blood pressures greater than 90 and who have volume overload, if one uh, uses the agent as indicated and uh, as recommended in the, in the label, it is a very effective agent for treating decompensation. What about the long-term effects of these inotropes? I know there is some concern about precipitating ventricular arrhythmias. Is this a real concern that we have to consider when using these agents? Well, it is a real concern. And frankly, if one examines the totality of data, it would appear that there is a cost to pay for the use of inotropic agents. And I'm not talking about economic cost here. I'm talking about adverse events. These agents are often associated with tachycardia, with risk for both atrial as well as ventricular arrhythmias, with uh, an increase in the risk for myocardial infarction. And in both randomized controlled trials as well as in observational studies, such as the ADHERE registry, there is an indication that the mortality rate may actually be increased by uh, utilization of positive inotropic agents. So what does that mean? I think that means we ought to uh, use these agents with caution. We ought to look at them as necessary evils in some patients. Again, if the patient's in cardiogenic shock, you have little choice but to pull out your pressors and positive inotropic agents. But I think it's important to realize that there may be a, a big downside to the use of these agents, and we just need to be cautious and, and appropriately weigh the risks and the benefits. Beta blockers, of course, are considered one of the important chronic therapies for heart failure. What do you do with the beta blocker therapy on a patient who comes into the hospital with an acute decompensation? Do you stop it or continue it? Yeah, this is an absolutely essential uh, question because more and more we are adequately treating our patients with chronic heart failure with beta blockade one of the two most important classes of agents to use in the treatment of chronic heart failure. When the patients come into the hospital, we would like to continue the beta blocker ideally because there is evidence in the published literature that suggests that outcomes may be worsened with the acute or abrupt withdrawal of beta blockade. So if we come back to that subsetting of patients, if the patient is wet and warm, I usually continue the beta blocker at its usual outpatient dose. If the patient is wet and lukewarm, has evidence for hypoperfusion, but without cardiogenic shock, I generally reduce the dose of the beta blocker, usually by a third to a half. And then as the patient becomes compensated again, try to titrate them back up to their target dose. And if the patient presents hypotensive and in frank cardiogenic shock, maybe the one instance in which you have to bite the bullet and, and temporarily withdraw the beta blocker as you try to uh, acutely achieve stability. How about that patient that you decide to use an inotrope, specifically dibutamine? Can you still use beta blockers or are you sort of using two therapies that are opposing each other? Yeah, re remarkably, while, the, while they do oppose each other, these are both competitive agents, that is competitive 
agonists and antagonists. And so in sort of a push-pull manner, they will work to displace one another from beta receptors. So you can still get a hemodynamic response from a sympathomimetic agent like dobutamine, even in the face of ongoing beta blockade. And while it sounds uh, kind of counterintuitive to say, there may actually be some advantages to continuing the beta blocker, even if it's at a lower dose than withdrawing it completely in that setting. In a sense, the beta blocker may take a bit of the edge off of the proarrhythmia associated with the inotrope when used uh, unopposed. I want to thank Dr. William Abraham, professor of medicine and director of the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at Ohio State University Medical Center, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing how to approach treating the acute decompensated heart failure patient. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.